0: Hello friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast, and this project is to work together through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Why not click on the subscribe button and make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. You are joining a community of thousands of people around the world who are working together through the whole Bible over the next 10 years. So with that said, we we'll leave it there, but hang on at the end, and I'll tell you about several ways in which you can connect to this ministry and the other free resources I make available. Bye-bye for now. okay friends welcome back as we continue to work through the gospel of matthew in season three of our journey through the entire bible and we're in matthew chapter 13 and we're continuing to look at the series of parables that jesus is teaching and we're picking it up in matthew 13 verses 24 when we're looking at this parable which is titled in my bible the parable of the wheat and the tares okay Beginning at verse 24, it says, Another parable he put forth, saying to them, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sows good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And when the wheat sprouted and the grain sprouted, it produced a crop. But then the tares appeared. So the servants of the owner came to him and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and to gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at that time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into the barn. Okay. The picture painted in the imagination of the people by this parable would have been very, very familiar to this first century audience. You see, tares were one of the great curses against which a farmer of Jesus' day would have had to struggle with, often, every day. Tares were a type of weed, which we today call bearded darnel. In these early stages, the tares mixed in with the wheat so closely resembled meat that it was almost impossible to distinguish one from another. But when both came closer to harvest and had created heads, it became somewhat easier to distinguish them. But by that time, the roots would be so intertwined between the wheat and the tares that one could not be weeded out without tearing the other out with it. Even farmers who tried to weed them out often found they could not separate one from the other soon enough because by the time they could identify them, it was too late. It was a very common sight to see the roots of these two plants so intertwined that it was impossible to separate them without basically destroying them both. Therefore, they actually had to be left to grow together, until the time of harvest you see the tares and the wheat so closely resembled each other that there was a popular idea at the time of jesus that the tares were a kind of plant which had somehow cross fertilized with wheat and created what was a mixed plant furthermore the grain of this tear the bearded darnel, was actually slightly poisonous it caused dizziness and sickness and had a bitter and unpleasant taste And even a small amount of it mixed in with the wheat affected the whole batch of wheat their presence greatly added to the cost of wheat production because women would have to be hired to pick out the darnell grain out of the seed which was about to be milled this separation of the Darnell seed, the tear seed from the wheat could only be done by spreading the grain out on a large tray in which they would literally pick out the seeds one at a time. You see the tear seeds were almost identical in size and shape but they were slate grey in colour. So you can see the consequences of this tear infestation was very serious and the picture here that Jesus is using of a man deliberately sowing tares into someone else's field was a powerful image, but it wasn't just an imagined idea. This was something that was actually done at the time between warning neighbours, to the point that it was in fact codified in Roman law as a crime with a specific punishment laid down for doing this. And this is why the meaning of this parable would have been very familiar to the people of Galilee who heard it from Jesus that day. Some have said that this is one of the most practical parables that Jesus has ever told because it teaches us about a time of harvest and of judgment coming. And there are many lessons to be learned from it. Firstly, it warns us that there are always hostile powers in the world, those seeking and wanting to destroy any evidence of the good seed where it is planted we need to have an insight that there are often malevolent influences at work in the world and that those influences can also act upon our own individual lives. Any influence that can be seen to be bringing the seed of the word to flourish and grow can be quashed by malevolent influences, those which seek to destroy the good seed before it can produce any fruit at all. This parable surely warns us all to always be on our guard. But secondly, it teaches us how hard it can be to distinguish between those things that are of the kingdom and those that are not. Something can appear to be good and may be presented to us as good and it may in fact be rotten to the core. And of course on the other side we may think something is bad or wrong and in fact it may be decent in its motivations. So, we need to be careful not to be too quick to label people or actions as either good or bad without having all the facts or seen their actions reach their fulfillment, their harvest, by which then we can make our judgment. So, this parable, I think, as a second lesson teaches us that we should not be too quick to pass judgment. Sound judgment will often mean waiting well in this case waiting until the harvest comes and at that point then we are able to make a judgment. We are not able to really judge another person by a single act or a single stage in their lives but by their whole lives. We know perhaps we are from our own point of view know that we can make a big mistake but then we can redeem ourselves and repent by the grace of God repenting and atoning for our mistakes by making the rest of our lives as best we can one of service to God. No one can take a snapshot of a life at a point in time and judge the whole life of that person by it and as someone who might only know a small part of someone's life can judge that entire life. Only God can do that third thing I think this parable teaches is that although we should not be hasty to judgment and that judgment should not necessarily be ours, yet surely a judgment will come. It may be that humanly speaking in this life sinners often seem to escape the consequences of their actions. It may be that humanly speaking also it can feel that goodness rarely comes to those who deserve it. But Jesus reminds us here that there is a new heaven and a new place to readdress that balance either way. This passage reminds us that the only person who has the right to judge is God alone. For it is God alone who sees the whole person and all of the person and all of the life. Therefore it is with him only that ultimate judgment can lie. So ultimately I believe this parable is warning us not to judge people at all. It reminds us that in the end, yes, a judgment will be made, and that judgment is God's alone. Jesus continues with another parable, the one of the mustard seed, the parable of small beginnings. The text continues, and we'll pick it up in verse 31. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. When it had grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air can come and nest in its branches. Now the mustard seed, as mentioned here, in the Middle East of that time, was the proverbial illustration for a small thing. For example, the Jews of the day would talk about a tiny breach of the ceremonial law being a defilement as small as a mustard seed. And Jesus himself used this phrase in this way when he spoke of faith as a grain of mustard seed, not just here, but in Matthew chapter 17 as well. However, the mustard seed in the fullness of time would be seen to grow into something almost as big as a tree. If it was left to grow unchecked, it could grow over four metres high. And furthermore, it was a common sight to see such mustard trees or bushes surrounded by birds. For birds loved the little black seeds of the tree, and they would settle on the tree to eat them, sometimes even nesting in them. And Jesus says this, that the kingdom of God itself is like a mustard seed, in that it too would grow from small beginnings into something substantial. The point is very clear, for all of us to see, isn't it? The kingdom of heaven starts sometimes from the smallest beginnings, but one knows where it will end. In Eastern language and in the Old Testament, one of the most common images used, both literally and in terms of art images, was the image of the empire being a tree with the subject nations depicted as birds finding rest and shelter within its branches. In fact, Ezekiel uses that picture in chapter 31. And this parable here tells us that the kingdom of heaven, yes, it begins very small, but in the end many nations will be gathered within it. It is a fact of history that some of the greatest things did not begin with a huge move amongst a huge group of people, but with the smallest of beginnings, sometimes a single, simple idea. And you know what, friends, a single idea can change a whole civilization. An idea can begin with just one man or woman. In the British Empire hundreds of years ago, it was a single man named William Wilberforce who was responsible for the fleeing of slaves. And the idea of that great liberation came to him when he read an exposure of the slave trade by a writer called Thomas Clarkson. Now Wilberforce was a close friend of Pitt the then Prime Minister, and one day when he was sitting in Pitt's garden, it was said that suddenly Wilberforce just turned to Pitt and said, why don't we give a motion on the ending of of the slave trade? An idea that was sown in the mind of one man who just read a small pamphlet, and that idea flourished and grew and changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people then and millions ever since. The idea must first find a place to nest and allow the person to be, well, almost obsessed with it, but then it can be released and sometimes it is an unstoppable tide that begins to flow. Christian witness many times also will begin with just one person. Great moves of God almost always begin with just a move of the Holy Spirit in the mind of one person. British historian Cecil Northcott tells in one of his books how he dreamt of a liberal empire south of the whole area of southern Africa, south of the Zambezi. But he found he met massive opposition from the likes of Cecil Rhodes and the Dutch Boers who were there at that time. In his decision to try and spread Christianity and a new perspective across the regions of Africa, which Britain had, in a sense, control over at that time, he decided to curate and call a Christian conference, and he brought hundreds of young Christians from many nations around the world and across Africa to meet and to discuss how the gospel might be spread in Africa, because he believed only through that true change would come. Now some people of that time they talked of propaganda, the use of literature and all the other ways that what they saw as the modern ways of disseminating the gospel in that then closing 20th century. Then a girl... An invited girl from an African village spoke, and she simply said, when we want to take Christianity to one of our nearby villages, we said, we don't send them books. We take a Christian family and we send them and get them to live in that village. They then, over time, make that village Christian by simply living among the people. Still today, in any group of society, in a school or in a factory, a shop or an office, again, it is usually the witness of just one individual or a few individuals who will bring, in a sense, Christianity into that environment. Some point out that this is one of the most personal parables that Jesus ever spoke. Because sometimes his disciples themselves must have, in a sense, despaired. They were a little bound. They were so small. There were only twelve in number. They must have sometimes thought, how can we ever change well never mind the world but this even the society in which we live in and in this passage jesus is saying to his disciples and anybody else who would listen and hear also that which include us includes us his followers today that they must not be discouraged but they must serve and witness each in his own way in his place where god has placed him and that each one, although they might only see the very smallest of the beginnings, from such beginnings, Jesus is teaching, the kingdom of God will grow, and one day the whole earth will be redeemed and belong to the Lord. We'll, we'll finish today by looking at this third parable that Jesus gives, one after another in a row, and this one is the parable of the leaven. It's just one verse and it says another parable he spoke to them the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. You see in every case Jesus is drawing parables from the scenes and activities of everyday life. He's using things which are entirely familiar to the listeners who are hearing what he said in order to lead them to things which they maybe have never even thought about or entered their mind before. He took the parable of the sower from the farmer's field and the parable of the mustard seed. He used the garden and he took the parable of the wheat and the tares by talking about the perennial problem which confronted every farmer and land user of that day. Later he will take the parable of the hidden treasure from the everyday task of digging a field and the parable of the pearl of great price from the world of fishing and commerce and trade. But in this parable, the parable of the leaven, Jesus comes closer to home than in any other because he took it from the kitchen of an ordinary home. You see, at that time, bread was nearly always baked at home and leaven was a little piece of dough kept over from the previous bake which was allowed to ferment in its keeping. But in Jewish law, leaven had always been connected with an evil influence, the Jews always connected this that thought of fermentation with putrefication, and leaven stood for that which is an evil thing. In fact, one of the great ceremonies in the preparation for the Passover, the feast, was the fact that every scrap of leaven would be sought out from the house and burned and the whole house would be cleaned and swept looking for it. So the whole point of the parable lies in the recognising of the transforming power of leaven how leaven changes the character of the whole bake. The introduction of leaven causes a transformation in the dough, painting a picture of the transformation that the kingdom causes in the life of an individual or society. This then, of course, fits in with the idea of Christianity creating a transformed life. As someone once said, we must never forget that the function and the power of Christ is to make bad people good. The transformation of Christianity begins in the individual life. Now, there are four great social directions, if you like, in which Christianity transformed the life of the ordinary person of the day, of these early days when it was emerging in the societies that it appeared in. Firstly, Christianity transformed the life of a woman. The Jew in the morning prayed, Thank God that I have not been made a Gentile, a slave or a woman. In Greek civilization, also the woman lived a life of utter seclusion with nothing to do beyond the household tasks. Christianity transformed the life of the woman and the societies it impacted. Immediately women were called into service and had a role. There were even leadership roles as deacons in the earliest of churches. Secondly, Christianity also transformed the life of anyone suffering or anyone who was ill. In the heathen world, those who were weak or ill were almost considered just a nuisance. In Sparta, when a child was born, he was submitted to the examiners, and if he was deemed fit, he was allowed to live, but if he was considered weak in any way or deformed in any way, he was left out to die of exposure on the mountainside. Did you know the first hospital and home for the blind was founded by Thalesus, a Christian monk? and the first free dispensary of medicine was founded by Apollonius, a Christian merchant, and the first hospital in the world that there is any record of was founded by Fabiola, a Christian lady in Rome. Christianity was the first faith to take interest in the broken things and people of life. Thirdly, Christianity also transformed the life of the elderly people. Like the weak, the old were considered a nuisance in all the main cultures of that time. The elderly were thought to have done their work. They were fit for nothing else to be discarded on the rubbish heap of life. Christianity was the first faith to regard people as persons and not instruments capable of just doing work. Many were called upon into important roles in the community and in the churches because of the wisdom that their long life had instilled. And finally, perhaps most importantly, Christianity also transformed the role of the family. In the immediate background during the emergence of Christianity, the marriage relationship had broken down to such an extent that the home and the family institution was in the very peril of destruction. Divorce was so common that it was neither unusual nor particularly seen as wrong for a woman to have a new husband every year. In such circumstances, children were a disaster. Children of previous marriages were often left behind or even left to die. And the custom of exposing children to death was becoming more and more common, particularly in the Roman culture in which Christianity first emerged. In modern times it seems that life is almost built around the child but in the ancient world and in these ancient civilizations the child had a very good chance of dying before it had even begun to live, especially even more so if it happened to be a female child. There is nothing in history that is so unquestionably demonstrable as the transforming power of Christianity on Christ on not only the individual's lives but on the life of and the society and the culture around it upon which it emerges. Almost all biblical scholars who approach this parable say it is speaking of the transforming power of Christ and his kingdom in both the lives of the individual and of the world in which they live. But there is, I have to be honest and say, a difference of opinion as to how that transforming power is illustrated as working by the use of this illustration. Sometimes it's said that the lesson of this parable is that the kingdom works unseen. We cannot see the leaven working in the dough any more than we can see a flower growing. But absolutely, the work of the leaven is still going on. The kingdom is always working and growing behind the scenes. On this view, the parable is teaching that Jesus Christ and his gospel released a new force in the world, a force that is silently but inevitably working for righteousness. And God is indeed through it working his purposes out year by year, decade by decade. But there are also people who take the opposite view of this parable. Famous British theologian C.H. Dodd said he thought the lesson of this parable is the very opposite of this, that far from being unseen the work of the kingdom can be clearly seen. The work of the leaven is plain for all to see because you put the leaven in the dough and the leaven changes the dough from a lump into an ever rising bubbling mass of goodness so to speak. Just so is the working of the kingdom of God. You know when Christianity first arrived in Thessalonica, Acts 17 tells us the people said these men who have turned the world upside down have come here amongst us also. So the act of Christianity is transformative sometimes disruptive sometimes disturbing for the people who are first receiving it but profound in its effect. There is an undeniable truth here that at the end of the day the Romans crucified Jesus because he was disturbing all the orthodox habits and conventions of his day and the local Jewish leadership did it for the same reason with the same motivations and that happens still today again and again. It has always been true that Christianity has at some level been persecuted because it desires to take both individuals and a society and remake them. To think about the destructive power the gospel would have if it got into places like North Korea or some of the Islamic states. There is nothing in the world as disruptive to a society as Christianity and the arising of true Christianity and that is the very fact the very reason why so many people resent it uh, because it, it demands a change of them and what they do and they resent it and they refuse it and some even wish to eliminate it. I believe that when we come to think about it, we don't need to choose between these two views of it being hidden or being seen, because in a sense they are both true. There is a sense in which the kingdom, the power of Christ, the power of the Spirit of God is always working, whether or not we see that work. But there is also a sense in which it is plain to see for those who wish to see it. Many a person's life is manifestly and dramatically changed by Christ Jesus every day, And at the same time, there is the silent operation of the Spirit of God along the long path of history. This parable teaches both that the kingdom is forever working and unseen, and it also teaches that there are times in an individual's life and in the history of the world and in the societies in which we live where the kingdom is at work and it is so obviously and manifestly seen and its power can be seen by anyone just chooses to see it. Okay, friends, that's it for today. It's a long one so I'll close off shortly by just reminding you that this podcast is hosted on the Bibleproject.buzzsprout.com, but you can subscribe to it wherever you're receiving your podcasts from. There should also be active links there to places that you can connect to both the community and other places where I place, shall we say, more formal structured discipleship type training and teaching courses. I do hope you find all of the resources we're making available helpful on your personal journey with the Lord and remember that they are all freely available free at point no cost and always in the public domain without copyright so take them and use them as you wish and with that said I'll just say bye-bye for now. What a pleasure and privilege it is to have been before you today. And we'll pick up again tomorrow and look at a couple more of the parables in this series of parables that Jesus is teaching his disciples. It's almost like a school of discipleship. One lesson after another. There's much to learn and much we can benefit from spending this time together. So I'll see you, I trust, right back here tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.